0: Expectations are a funny thing, aren't they? Uh, We all have them, we all know about them. You have expectations of work, don't you? When you start, perhaps what you wear, what you can say in meetings, and what you can say in front of particular people at particular times. They're not rules, they're not laws. It's just believe that you will. It's expected of you, isn't it? I don't know about that, more social kind of environment. You perhaps have anyone ever turned up to a dinner party or something, you know, gone around someone's house, you're expecting it kind of casual, you kind of play it down, you're in your jeans and t-shirt, and suddenly everyone's there in their ton of tuxedos or something way, way, way along the spectrum from where you are uh, in what you're dressing, dressing in. We have funny expectations, don't we? Perhaps you have expectations when you met someone. You've been informed that they were really great fun, really good company, and you've kind of planned a day, time in your diary, perhaps half a day with them, and then you realize that the time you spent with them is more like a lifetime. Expectations. Even at church. If you're a regular here, you're probably sitting here, aren't you? You're thinking, well, he's going to go on maybe 25, 30 minutes. Now, I'm not going to prove a point. i going to destroy all your expectations and keep going for an hour, so don't panic there. But you have your expectations. See, Matthew 11, this chapter, we looked at last week and again this week, I think it's best understood uh, if we understand the expectations of the time. Jesus has been going around various places, performing many miracles. If you just look back to uh, chapter 11, verse 2, you'll see there, John the Baptist had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. And Jesus' deeds... They've all been spelt out from chapter 5 kind of onwards in his teaching and then his miracles and going about right up until chapter 10. And it, it had provoked all these different kinds of responses from misunderstanding to really kind of outright rejection against Jesus. And these responses, if you like, are now what is being picked up in chapters 11 and 12. And actually they will be explained through parables in chapter 13. Now, Matthew's Gospel will continue on like this. Jesus doing various things, performing miracles, saying various things. And their responses are what are being dealt with right up until chapter 16. And there you see, if you like, the first right response to Jesus is found when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. People were struggling to see you see, they look in front of them and they see a man. They see Jesus. Uh, but they're really struggling to put that together with him being the Messiah. Especially him being the Messiah of their hopes and their dreams. The problem is their expectations. See, many, many of the time, many people of the time expected that the long-awaited promised Messiah of the Old Testament... Uh, that the Messiah is the title given, it's just God's anointed king. Uh, the one in the Old Testament they were expecting was, uh, in the Old Testament he lived in a palace. He ruled with you know, kind of great grandeur but also great power. Uh, all the guards, his ruthless army. Think King David and you've got the picture of what they're thinking in their minds. That's the expectation. And Jesus comes into that level of expectation And despite all the promised signs of the coming Messiah and the prophets, people were struggling to take this man, Jesus, and link him to their expectations of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist asks, doesn't he, is he really the one? Look back at verse 3 of chapter 11. Are you the one who has come or should we expect someone else? This is John the Baptist of all people. The one who at Jesus' baptism was there and he heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son whom I love. Even he is going, is this really the one? And this is the question of John. And it is all to do with expectations. Jesus has done so many miracles. uh, But they weren't part of, if you like, the common expectation for the Messiah. People had in their mind just kings. Ruler, someone to kick out the Romans. They were struggling, you see, to see beyond their own limited expectations, even though Jesus, the miracle worker, was right before their eyes. We saw, if you look down in verse 6 of last week, uh, that chapter 11, some were even stumbling on the account of Jesus, including John the Baptist, it seems. That word is literally, they were scandalised by him, taking offence. But some were open to Jesus, as we saw. But again, we know it's because they viewed Jesus without their preloaded expectations. They came empty-handed. They came understanding their need. They came understanding that they couldn't change God, but rather they needed a radical transformation themselves. And Jesus essentially spends the next a couple of chapters responding to that question from John in verse 3. And, and the rest of the cha- this, this chapter particularly is really a sermon about John, but also about Jesus as well. Because it shows us implicitly what Jesus is about. So we see the question of John, but also the sermon on John. And that sermon goes from kind of verse 7 onwards in the chapter, and he kind of makes three points, Jesus does, about John. Firstly, he shows he's kind of like a super prophet, uh, more than a prophet, he says, in verse 9. But you see what Jesus is saying about himself there? Well, if, Jesus, if John is the more than a prophet, what does that make me? The one whom John is preparing the way for. Again, in verse 11, you see Jesus shows that John is the most righteous. In a sense, the greatest man up to this point. But Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom of God. Now, John may be the greatest of that old order. But what does that tell you about Jesus, the king of the new order, the new kingdom? Third point he makes. He points out that John is kind of like the the new Elijah who's come as the old testament prophet had predicted and the jews expected but the new elijah of malachi 4 which is what, where the prediction comes from will be the one who prepared the way not for the messiah but for god himself and what does that tell us about jesus therefore See, Jesus in this three-point sermon exalting John the Baptist shows us he's greater than John, not just a prophet, not just a king of a new kingdom. No, he is God himself, now in a human body. And in some ways, well, people had way too high expectations. They wanted a king and a palace with soldiers and to crush the Roman rule. But in many ways, they just had way too low expectations. They wanted a Messiah, yes, God's anointed king. They got that, but they just weren't expecting the Messiah to come as Jesus and also as God in human flesh. People had the wrong expectations and therefore their response was inappropriateness. Jesus said in verse 15, whoever has ears, let him hear. And the problem is many didn't. They could hear and see Jesus, but they they just didn't get it. And that's what we see in uh, verses 16 through to 19. We see the response to both John and Jesus. And Jesus uses this really quite provocative illustration to show people's skewed expectations and their, if you like, their lack of ears to hear. It had moulded their responses to both John and Jesus. Jesus. And can I just warn you, I I would wonder whether this little section itself may blow apart your expectations of Jesus. Look at verse 16. To what can I compare this generation, Jesus says? They're like little children, sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. Now, this may not kind of like trigger loads of kind of like memories for us, but this for the first listeners of this Sorry, uh, story of Jesus teaching, they would have gone, yeah, we know what that looks like. Jesus is picking a scene known to all at that time, children, just sitting in a marketplace. Jesus is comparing this generation, those who have wrong expectations and do not believe that he's Messiah, and he's comparing them literally to kind of like stroppy kids in a marketplace. And the big issue, I think, here is unbelief. Look down with me. We'll come back to that little illustration in a moment. But look down at verses 18 and 19. I think you see that unbelief is spelt out here. John came. He lived his very basic life in the wilderness. And some followed his teaching of repentance, but many wouldn't listen. Rather, they thought, he's got a demon. They wouldn't believe this prophet from God. Jesus, as the son of man, the eternal ruler, came. He ate and drank, quite the opposite of John. Uh, He met with outcasts, the lowly of society. Did they listen? No. Did they believe? No. This generation think he's a glutton and drunkard. It's unbelief. Whatever they see in front of their eyes, they just can't believe it it is who it really is. That God has sent a prophet and his son himself. Their expectation was that the Messiah would ride into town, would wipe out the Roman rule, would eat with the morally upright and not with those smelly people from the lower classes. And in response to their response, here Jesus is comparing this unbelieving generation to stroppy little children calling out to passers by in a marketplace. And it's not a very pretty picture. Look at it, verse 17. This is the kids calling out. We played a pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, let's be clear before we go on any further. Jesus doesn't, like, he's not going to have a big downer on kids here, by the way. Our children love Jesus, Jesus loved children, and Jesus uses many, many positive illustrations. Uh, about children that we are to be like children that is dependent and vulnerable to enter the kingdom of God that's what Jesus teaches elsewhere but here Jesus says there there is a generation of people Uh, in fact you might just say people in general maybe even you here he's here Jesus says we relate to God like stroppy little children calling out to passers-by. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, let me just spell this out. The, the children are kind of playing a game here. They're thinking about the, kind of, the two major public events that happened within a kind of town like this, a, a wedding and a, and a funeral. And you can imagine the children, you know, they're playing the pipe, the music of the wedding, the celebration, the joyful one. And you can imagine, you know, they play it on the pipe, the tune that everyone would have sung at the kind of local weddings. And they're saying, come on, you guys, dance for us like you would do at a wedding celebration. That is what they expected. That's what they wanted. They're having fun. They're having a bit of a game, aren't they? Get the pipe out, play the wedding tune. Oh, come on, you, come on, dance for us. And then they would sing a dirge. That's like a funeral hymn, if you like. A miserable, sad song. And, uh, and you can imagine the children are, we're singing it for you. And you know, come on you guys, mourn for us like you would at the funeral, mourn for us. Again, the children had expectations. They thought they could play or sing a dirge and everyone would do what they want, be who they wanted to be. And you can imagine, can't you, as they, as they played the pipe and they sang the dirge, these children, as people said, well, shut up, you guys, I'm not going to do that. They were, you, know, you can imagine them getting more and more stroppy, can't you? As passers-by were not doing as they, to- they were told. They were defying the children's expectations. They weren't being who the children wanted them to be. I think what these kids are doing. Basically, they want to be in charge, don't they? They want the passers-by to hear the music and the songs that they sing and, and like puppets on a string, act in the way that they are determining them to act. And do you see what Jesus is saying with this rather provocative illustration? Many people convince themselves that there is something wrong with the Christian faith. In reality, they are like little stroppy children calling out, wanting God the passer-by... To be under their control. To dance in the way that, he, that they choose. It's a power issue. And it's true of all of us to a degree. I mean, you may be a Christian here today, but so often we take that retrograde step and act like little, stroppy children, don't we? It's hard Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's God in human flesh, then we have to, in a sense, lose all power over our lives. Because as creator and Lord, he has the authority and the right to rule our lives in every part as he speaks through his word to us. Imagine for a moment you you go out and... uh, there you are. This is totally out of my comfort zone, but here we go. You know, There you go out, and uh, you're at a party. Some tune comes on. Everyone gets up to dance. And there you are, grumpy. You go, I'm not dancing. I don't want to dance to this tune. Which is what we say to God in our unbelief. I'm not dancing to your tune, God. Often those who aren't Christians really struggle with this. Of course they do, because we all do. And if that is to you today, then, and you're here and you, you're not a Christian, then welcome. It's great that you're here, and it's great that you can come and ask questions. Don't think you're any different to any of any, the rest of us. We struggle with this. We all do. Non-Christians very often they come to uh, to jesus very skeptically rightly looking for evidence and you will never hear me say oh but believe about jesus forget all this kind of stuff let's not look at the evidence just believe me because i say it's true no we've got to look at the evidence we must do that but the problem we all face like we are seeing in our passage today is that we want jesus in our way we want to be in control And we are like little children telling God to dance to our tune, to be the God we want him to be. Make my life only merry, please. With success after success, with joy after joy, with only rainbows and unicorns. You know what I mean by that. With these expectations of God and Jesus, do we have any chance, as we look at the evidence right in front of our eyes, You see, evidence is there. It's right in front of you. It's on your laps in the Bible, right there. But often in our unbelief, we interpret anything that we see in front of us and we kind of twist it, fashion it uh, to maintain control of our lives. and we end up blaming everyone and everything. It's never our fault. No one understands. And we're like stroppy children calling out, dance for us, Jesus. Be the Jesus I want you to be. Be the God I want you to be. Mourn for us as we sing a song of a dirge. Do you see the nature of unbelief here? In a moment, Jesus will mention a few towns which he's visited in each. Of those, uh, at the beginning, he's performed numerous miracles. He's done just so much healing and proclaiming the good news that he's the king of God's good eternal kingdom. The miracles evidence the power that he has as, as God's king. But did they have ears to hear? Do we? See, the nature of unbelief cannot be rightly understood just in terms of evidence all the evidence was right before the eyes of these people, of the towns that Jesus visited. They'd seen it again and again and again. And they still couldn't see Jesus for who he truly was. See, unbelief isn't a lack of evidence, isn't due to a lack of evidence or coherent argument. Unbelief. Well, The nature of it is understood in the presence of something else. And again, if you're you're here and you're sceptical about Jesus, please do ask questions. Find out the evidence for who he is. Jesus went from town to town providing evidence for who he was. He reasoned with them, but their unbelief overwhelmed them. It skewed expectations. It blinded them to the evidence right before their eyes. I remember speaking to someone who said to me something like this, Oh, if I could see Jesus face to face, everything would be fine. You know, if Jesus were to come here and do a miracle right in front of me, I'd be absolutely with you on that. I totally understand. I totally put my faith in Jesus. Do you know, even when Jesus' closest followers had seen him perform hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles... And it's seen him rise to new life. Just before he's about to ascend to heaven, if you go right to the last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28, what happens? Verse 16. Eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. That's what you expect. And that's what it says. But the sentence doesn't end there. It says this rather. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They'd seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles, evidence after evidence that Jesus is truly the Son of God, the Messiah, God in human flesh, and still some doubted. See, faith in Jesus is not dependent on evidence evidence is important and it is there abundantly the problem is not a lack of evidence there is there's more than enough the problem is you and the problem is me because our hearts are naturally resistant against God because we want control we want to play the pipe and choose the songs And so, what is the remedy? Before we hear the last warning, so the remedy to unbelief, we've seen John. He'd come. He preached. John was a pretty scary figure, by the way. He'd gone out into wilderness and basically preach hellfire and repentance. Pretty much, that's all he'd done. Jesus had come and preached the new kingdom of grace that was being ushered in. John lived out in a wilderness, eating locusts and wearing some really quite bizarre clothing. He was this kind of austere character of the old age. And Jesus had come, he'd come into the towns and he'd had feasts. He'd been eating and drinking and proclaiming the kingdom, which was about feasting and eternal feasting and joy. And the wonderful thing is that the Christian faith is attention of those both. On one hand, a dirge, if you like. Christianity is utterly the most pessimistic about us as human beings, as we cling on to power, wanting control. Therefore, we we deserve the judgment of God, which John proclaimed. Because we ask God to dance to our tune all too often. On the other hand, the Christian faith is is totally optimistic. It's a dance because uh, it proclaims a message of grace, undeserved kindness from God for those who are willing to relinquish control and trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. You see, it's both. These children, unbeknownst to them, are illustrating, if you like, the Christian faith. It's both a dirge and a dance. Uh, And that is why this passage wonderfully illustrates why uh, religion, if you like, anything other than the Christian faith, uh, well, it doesn't say anything so strongly as this does here, does it? Religion loves to say, you're okay, just work a little bit harder, contribute a little bit. You're neither a dirge nor a dance, you just need to do your best and contribute what you can. And Jesus says to you, no, I'm sorry, you're nothing. And I am everything. Come and dance with me and let me lead you to eternity in my embrace. The problem is, the difficult thing is, you've got to let Jesus have the pipe. You've got to let Jesus lead you and love you. You've got to let Jesus save you by his grace. And you know what the biggest problem we have with this is? If you're saved by grace alone, and one scholar put it this way, he said, if you're saved by grace alone, there is no limit to what God can ask of you. You see, if, if you contributed, like, like every other religion says, uh, look, God or some deity has done this, and, and you need to work very hard to get to this point as well, and you're contributing, well, if you've contributed to your salvation, you can negotiate, can't you? I'll give you this part of my life, but that bit, no, thank you very much. Whereas Jesus says, you come with nothing and I'll do everything. And as a result, there is no limit to his rule over our lives. The real problem is, it's not your tune. And that is so hard. And Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds, a fun little phrase, right at the end there in verse 19. Literally that reads, she, that is wisdom, is proved right by her children. Now Jesus, what he's doing here is he's personifying wisdom here to essentially say, if you continue to try and lead life your way to your tune, wisdom in the end will come through. Now what's he doing? Interestingly, he's using uh, part of the Old Testament, Proverbs particularly, Proverbs 8 where wisdom was at God's side. And John in chapter one of his gospel says, Jesus was the one at God's side in creation. Wisdom is paralleling the two together. And what Jesus is carefully saying is this. Jesus is saying, I am the wisdom of God and only through me can you hold both of these things together in life. The dirge and the dance. And the Christian life... Christian faith wonderfully makes sense of that. Because life sometimes, as you know, some of you feel that dirge, you feel that funeral possession, you feel life is just overwhelming, it's too much, it's too painful. And you need to mourn. But also you'll know if you are a Christian here today, life is also a dance because in Christ there is new hope, living hope. A new creation that awaits with eternal feasting and intimate and unbroken love. And what Jesus is saying here is that only in him, the wisdom of God that was there at creation, only in him, when he stretched out his arms on the cross for you, was the holiness and the love of God coming together. If you like the dirge and the dance, opening up a way to get through the, the hard times of life. To live for that eternal dance in the new creation. See, the remedy of unbelief is simply to come to Jesus, the wisdom of God. Understand that you will be biased, understand your heart, know that you hate relinquishing control and power. But know that ultimately the pipe belongs to Jesus and we have been created to dance to his tune. Our passage ends, and it will be a repeated refrain of Matthew's gospel with a warning. The woes on the unrepentant. It's a pretty scary four verses, isn't it? Five verses. Now look at down, at, down at verse 20 through to verse 24. Jesus denounces the towns which he performed these miracles. we mentioned them already. The people there would not repent These people had seen so much from Jesus, and they'd heard so much. They'd had the evidence right in front of their eyes about who Jesus was, but their expectations and their stubborn hearts had blinded them. And please, please hear the warning. Respond to the tune that Jesus is lovingly playing here. Choosing, you see, not to respond to Jesus is a frightening prospect. For even the towns that were notorious for doing evil stuff, as you see down there, the Sodoms of this world, they would be better off on Judgment Day than those who had heard and seen again and again and again and who still returned uh, to reject Jesus. Whoever you are here today, please hear this warning. Because you really, really don't want to be a Bethsaida or a Capernaum. Capernaum was like the central place of Jesus' ministry at this stage. They'd seen Jesus so many times, heard him teach. They knew so much, but they wanted Jesus their way, fulfilling their expectations. And it meant they were blind to him of who he was, the Messiah. God's wisdom in human form, right in front of their eyes. God's son who stood before them. You see, my friends, it's so easy, isn't it, to come to church. Maybe some of you have been to church Pretty much every week of your whole life. It's very easy to come to church for all of your life and still, still want Jesus to dance to your tune. And here is the warning. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will be lifted to the heavens. No. You will go down to Hades. Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would remain to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Please hear the warning. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, this picture of uh, children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others is one that is slightly alien to us, but we get the picture. And so often it is easy for us to want you and your son, the Lord Jesus, to be who we want you to be, yet you have revealed yourselves through your word. We know who you are. We know what you have come to do for us. And we know how we should live in response to that. Please help each of us to have the right expectations of you and to delight, in a sense, to to be dancing to your tune every day of our lives, knowing it is the best for us and there awaits for us feasting in an eternal joy. Please help us to hear these warnings. Help us not to Just with complacence, come before you every week, see you uh, in your word, hear more about you and not respond appropriately. Still wanting you to dance to our tune, please help us. Please open our eyes, I pray, that we wouldn't be those of unbelief, but we would be those of faith who live it out and who long to proclaim it. ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.